This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 149, with Jeremy Roll. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello everyone, MC Lobster here and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today and in today's show we're going to be looking at what it means to be a passive cash flow investor and we're also going to be discussing what are some of the most desirable asset classes to invest in in the next 10, 15 and 20 years. My guest today is Jeremy Roll. Jeremy has been an active real estate and business investor for over 15 years who left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full full-time passive cash flow investor. He is currently an investor in more than 70 opportunities across over $500 million worth of real estate and business assets. As the founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,000 investors in the United States and Canada who seek passive managed investments in real estate and businesses. Jeremy also co-founded For Investors by Investors, a nonprofit organization in 2007 with the goal of networking with and learning from and helping other investors. For Investors by Investors is now the largest group of public real estate investor meetings in California with over 23,000 members. Jeremy is originally from Montreal. He is a licensed California real estate broker for investing purposes only. He has an MBA from the Wharton School and is an advisor for Realty Mogul, the largest real estate crowdfunding website in the United States. Jeremy welcomes emails from anyone to network with or help other investors to discuss real estate or business investments of any size. Please share your feedback and thoughts with me on today's interview. You can let me know your thoughts on Twitter by tweeting me at MCLobsher or by email at info at CashflowNinja.com. And please remember to join our mailing list by signing up at CashflowNinja.com or texting CashflowNinja, one word, all capitalized, to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. You can support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. And when you become a patron, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. You can become a patron by visiting CashflowNinja.com forward slash support. Have you read Rich Dad Poor Dad? Are you interested in real estate investing and don't know where to start or to get the results you want? For valuable information to get you started, visit JoinOps Properties at JoinOpsProperties.com. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at CashflowNinja.com forward slash private lending. Spartan Invest have a proven plan and system helping investors creating passive income and wealth through turnkey real estate ownership in the exciting market of Birmingham, Alabama. 
Find out why Birmingham has got it going on, why it's a steal right now, why it's a millennial hangout, a hidden gem, and one of the most exciting investment opportunities you have never heard of. You can download your free report, Five Big Reasons to Invest in the Magical City of Birmingham, Alabama, at CashflowNinja.com forward slash Spartan. I've spoken about the most powerful system on the planet, on the show, the banking system. And my firm, Valhalla Wealth Financial, helps people reclaim the banking function within their own lives through leveraging the premium tools and strategies of the wealthy. If you're interested in reclaiming the banking function within your own life and the infinite banking concept, you can access a free webinar presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Can you please share a little bit about your background and your journey with my listeners? Sure. Um, you know, I guess I would consider myself, I call myself a full-time passive cash flow investor. So I essentially um, have been investing in alternative, mostly commercial real estate uh, type of uh, alternative passive cash flow opportunities since 2002. Um, I did manage in 2007 to get out of the corporate world thanks to the cash flow. So um, now, truly, I spend my days trying to find more opportunities to reinvest my capital so I continue my cash flow stream so I never have to go back to the corporate world. Um, and that's actually been about 10 years full time. So um, that's, that's me in a quick uh, nutshell. Was there a point in time that, um, and you're very well educated, went to fantastic schools, uh, spent some time in the corporate world. At what moment did you have that aha moment um, when you said, wait a second, there's a better way of doing this and start educating yourself and looking into cash flow businesses and investments? Yeah, yeah. Good question. So uh, for me, um, I was actually, it was in 2002, I was um, working at Disney headquarters in Burbank um, and in California. And dot com crash had just happened, and I was really sick and tired of the stock market for two reasons. One is more obvious than the other. So the obvious one, which probably most people are thinking about, is the volatility. I'm a really low risk, slow and steady guy. So to watch the stock market go up and down thirty percent in a year just was not a good fit for me. But actually, what was even more of a bad fit for me, which is truly what motivated me to look for other alternatives, um, was um, the lack of predictability. That's really what, what really upset me. So not knowing where my retirement account would be in a year, 10 years, 20 years, the fact that you cannot predict where the stock market's going was just, it seemed like an odd retirement strategy. It was not going to fit for me. So what really motivated me to look was to try to find opportunities that had more predictability. And that's how I ended up focusing on cash flow and real estate, um, cash flow, low risk cash flow in real estate in particular. But I actually invest not just in real estate, but also in other stuff. For me, it's all about the predictability of the cash flow. Um, I just, I'm a, you know, I have like everything on a spreadsheet 10 years out and it's just much better fit for me to be able to predict, you know, within reason, obviously, where things are going and how, you know, where I'm going to be in a certain amount of time. Obviously, from a planning standpoint, yeah, absolutely, because you can predict and look at, try and find and add investments to pro, that's going to produce a certain amount of cash flow for you in five years and 10 years and 15 and 20 years. Exactly. And, you know, for me, it's just a peace of mind knowing that I actually understand where I'm going. And I'm a very slow and steady guy. And so, um, you know, if I tell you that I want to be somewhere in 10 or 20 years, that like I'm I'm not in a rush to get somewhere in a year necessarily. So because I'm I have that mindset, 
the idea that I can actually put it all out in the spreadsheet. And I don't personally think I'm going to be accurate 100% as to, you know, exact, the exact decimal as to where I'm going to be in 20 years from now. But knowing that I have a plan and knowing that I can focus on sticking on the plan and, and because I have that slow and steady mindset, it all works really well together. And there's a key lesson there just in what you said, knowing where you are going, because if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there, right? Yes, that's very true. And I've been, you know, I read a lot, um, as you would imagine, and I really have become convinced where you'll see a lot of people say, you probably read this a lot yourself, where a lot of people say that if you keep focusing on a goal, your entire life can change. And just by focusing on it and visualizing it, and there isn't like a good tangible explanation for it, but this somewhat falls within that realm. And I've become a big believer in that philosophy over time, even though I was skeptical to begin with. I've actually lived it now because it's been 15 years for me going down this path. Um, and um, I really see how it works. It's really interesting. Now, you are a passive cash flow investor. Can you share with my listeners what it is and what it means to be a passive cash flow investor? Sure. So um, everyone has their own definition of what passive really means in investing. And I'll just kind of share what, what the way I would describe it is to me, if you're passive, you're basically giving someone else control on the day to day decision making of an opportunity. And you're hoping to collect, you know, you know, for on a cash flow perspective, periodic checks, typically it's quarterly, sometimes it's monthly, assuming that there's a you know funds available for distribution. So when I tell people that uh, I'm a passive cash flow investor, I trade control for diversification meaning that I can put small pieces across a lot of different opportunities. And I make bets on experts in various different fields, many of which are in commercial real estate across different asset classes like apartments and office and self-storage and mobile home parks and some others. Um, and, and so that's kind of what I picture being a passive cash flow investor, someone who's able, able to do all the work up front, determine if they want to make a bet on a person who's running a specific opportunity, and then make that investment and then follow along, read the quarterly reports, get the quarterly checks, that's passive. Active to me is someone who actually has a day-to-day decision-making power. So some people who, let's say, invest in single-family homes will say, well, I am passive because I have a property manager. But to me, you're not really passive because A, you have control. So you can go ahead and sell the property anytime you want. You could hire or fire the property manager. Uh, But also, when that property manager has a new air conditioner needs to be replaced, they're going to call you and they're going to present you with that decision. You're going to have to make that decision. You're the expert. So to me, when you're passive, you don't have to be the expert in a specific asset class or opportunity. When you're active, you really do have to be the expert to an extent, not necessarily as, ex- as expert as, let's say, the property manager themselves, but you got to know enough to know whether you're making good or bad decision when it comes to making all those decisions. So that's how I would differentiate between the two. And you're working on your investments and not in them creating another job for yourself. Yes, exactly. Although I have to say that I... I'm full-time passive cash flow investor, and there's a lot of networking and other things that goes into it if you really want to do it full-time and be really successful. So I work, honestly, as hard as I did when I was in the corporate world. Um, so, you know, that's that's another thing people who are listening should understand that um, this, I'm not going to I, – I live in Los Angeles, and I could get to the beach in like 15 minutes, but I'm not going to the beach all day and sipping on a margarita. I'm working very hard at this. And looking at more opportunities, because again, back to our uh, first part of the conversation, you have a plan, you know where you're going, uh, and you're focused on working to get you and your family there with that vision that you had uh, at, the, uh, at the start of it. Yes. And I think one important thing to note as well is that if you're going to have this long-term plan on the passive cash flow side, 
one of the challenges, unlike the real, unlike the stock market, is that you most of the opportunities you're going to find are typically have. I'm just going to generalize, say, a five or ten year horizon or term that's that's projected to be, and that means that on a longer term basis, you're going to have to continue to to find new opportunities as some cash out, reinvest, find new opportunities. So it's not like you just buy, um, let's say, index tracker for the S and P 500. Uh, ETF, and then you just leave it in there for 30 years, right? That's 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 a stock side. This is a commitment to knowing that if you want to be properly diversified across um, asset classes, geographies, and operators, which is really how I try to diversify, then you're going to have to constantly look for new opportunities over the years as other other cash out. As you realize, you don't want to get too heavily focused on one operator for that risk. You don't want to be too focused on one asset class because of that risk. So. There's a lot that goes on in the background and you're constantly having to tweak it and then you're constantly having to make changes. What types of returns are you looking at when you are analyzing these investments? Yeah, great question. So because I'm so heavily cash flow focused, because I live off the cash flow, um, and that's what I look for is that predictable cash flow. Really, when I look at an opportunity, I have certain minimum criteria that line up on the cash flow side. So a lot of people look at the return on investment or the projected return on investment, or projected IRR, or both. But for me, the number one thing I focus on to start is the, the projected cash flow. Um, and just, just you know, my own personal criteria, and this is just very subjective, is that I look for a minimum of nine percent cash flow projected net to investors year one, um, and I look for eleven percent projected averaged annualized cash flow net to investors across the five or ten year horizon. And if something doesn't meet those two criteria, then I would say the vast majority of time I skip over it. There are definitely exceptions for various reasons, but they're kind of rare. So what's interesting, though, is that in the types of opportunities I invest, when I look for that level of cash flow and target that, what ends up happening is that it ends up being a specific type of profile. And as a result, um, the typical average annualized ROI, when you include the cash flow, the mortgage pay down, and some level of assumed depreciation, which is a lot less predictable than the cash flow typically, when you add up all those three components, normally the, the type of things I invest in have a projected return of 16 to 20% annualized when you add all the components up. But I mostly just focus on hitting those cash flow targets. Everything else seems to just fall in place after that. And the other thing is obviously the operators or the sponsors that bring these opportunities to you because you said also that that's a very big part, right? You're investing in the person. Uh, and the expert. So what are some of the steps that you take to qualify them um, and to vet these operators and sponsors that uh, present opportunities to you? Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's interesting. And this is the same for investing in startups. You know, it's interesting. I'm just going to touch upon this on the startup side. A lot of people get enamored by an idea when they're looking at a brand new business to startup. And I think I think they tend to lose sight, t- sight sometimes of the fact that the team that's about to execute this idea is much more important than the actual idea itself because the idea may change and may evolve and may have to be tweaked because of market conditions. So, you know, my, my suggestion always is don't invest in the idea, invest in the team. And it's the exact same idea when it comes to passive cash flow investing on the real estate side, for example. Um, the team is much more important than the asset. I like to tell people that you can invest in the best building on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, it's 100% occupied in the best location. But if it's run into the ground and not managed properly, what's going to happen is that the, basically tenants are going to leave, building's going to be vacant, and the keys are going to go back to the bank and you'll have nothing. You'll have lost all your money, even though it was in the best location. So the key thing you're looking at here is the team that you're making the bet on. Now, vetting that team can be 
definitely, it's, it's a little tricky in that there's a lot of intangibles that go into it. In the end of the day, the reality is that I, I take a number of steps and then it's a basic gut check. You go with your gut. I mean, that's, that's what I do. Um, and so, but certain minimum things that I do, absolute minimum that I would do is the first thing I do is I take the opportunity and, and the summary they present to investors. And you want to read between the lines and try to determine if the operator is being conservative, trying to underpromise and overdeliver to build long-term relationships with investors, which is what I'm looking for, versus being aggressive, using very aggressive assumptions, making the numbers look really good so they could try to attract investors. But the problem with that is that they're probably lining up to overpromise, underdeliver. And in that case, often those um, operators are not only looking under potentially underdeliver, but some of them are just getting deals done for the fees and then they don't really care about whether they have repeat investors. They'll just keep doing deals that look attractive and just trying to find new investors to get the deals done. So I'm honestly looking for the former. So um, I read, you got to read between the lines as far as sizing up the assumptions, even down to like how some of the verbiage uh, reads from the opportunities. You know, is this someone who's conservative? Are you reading between the lines? Can you tell that they're conservative or are they aggressive? And a great example of this is on the aggressive side is the word guaranteed, right? Um, in the types of investments I invest in, if you see the word guaranteed return or whatever, I would run for the hills because there is never a guarantee. There's always a way you can lose your money. That's just the reality of, of investing. And so that's someone who is being aggressive and trying to make it look really attractive for investors, as an example. Um, so you're looking for those types of things. I always, I, without getting into too much detail, I look at all the assumptions, try to determine if someone's been aggressive or not in terms of the rent level increases, the expense inflation increases over time, the expense ratio that was used. Are they making it the numbers look better because they assume the lower level of expenses in a typical building of this asset class would require? Um, for example, there's a lot of different things they can do to engineer the numbers to make them look better than they're probably going to be. Um, what, were they very thorough, right? You want to invest in someone who's been extremely thorough. So if you're looking at an apartment building, and I like using apartments as, as a good example, because I know a lot of the listeners probably can relate to them and understand them. So if you're looking at an apartment building and somebody isn't presenting to you the comparable rents of comparable properties within a certain radius, doesn't mean they haven't analyzed it, but it definitely is a yellow flag, right? Because you want someone who has looked at all the angles and really turned every stone and has done the proper analysis. So you're looking for a really comprehensive overview that includes all of the items you'd expect to see that they would have analyzed. And then I always ask a lot of questions over the phone, both to clarify, but also part of my goal in asking those questions is, again, reading between the lines and hearing what they're saying and seeing their responses as to whether they're conservative or aggressive, just in the way they're speaking to me right? Sometimes you can tell. Um, great example of what I might hear on the phone that I'd like to hear is, well, you know, we made this assumption, you know, we use this number because it was conservative and we think we're going to do probably better than this, but we left it like this, even though the returns are lower so that we set the right expectations for investors. That, that's a great thing I love to hear, right? Mm. Um, and that's a great example of reading between the lines as to who you're dealing with. Uh, a final thing I would say that's really key that, frankly, unfortunately, most investors don't do based on me asking many different people over time, which is really unfortunate, is background checks. I always, always run a background check on any of the managers within the LLC and any other key people. Uh, it's definitely saved me a number of times. And I hate to say it, but if I had to guess, I maybe think one out of 10 investors run a background check if that, which is really sad because here's what I will tell you, MC. I have... Uh, there definitely are some fraudulent managers and some Ponzi schemes out there. Fortunately, they're not that common in my experience, but they're out there. 
And every time I've come across someone who's been a victim of one of those, I've always asked them out of curiosity, did you run a background check before you invested with these people? I have yet to come across somebody who said yes to that, who ended up in the position of being in a bad position because of that. So that's a key thing that most people don't do that they should do. And there's a ton of really, really good points that you just made there too. The word guarantee, absolutely. The other, <laughs> and if numbers, if all of them end in zeros, right? <laughs> that, could, that could potentially also be a red flag. That's funny. That's true. But that, that's a great example of reading between the lines. What does that tell you? That tells you that either somebody isn't detail-oriented enough to bother to give you the real numbers or there's just something weird going on. But that's a great example of what I was talking about. Now, you have invested in a lot of different asset classes. Uh, can you share a little bit with my listeners what asset classes you have invested in and why you invest in, in them and like them? And what are some of the, the asset classes that you uh, don't see in, in quite a favorable light? Yeah, great question. So I am currently in over 70 different LLCs invested in those, and I've invested in over 100 over the past 15 years. So I'm a huge fan of diversification. I really, that's one of the things I really love to be able to do. And just more from a peace of mind perspective. So um, I am currently invested in a lot of different, most of the major commercial real estate asset classes, even a lot of different angles on single family, although less so. Um, here's what I would tell you that um, I invest, I change the way I invest depending on where we are in the cycle. So, and what I mean by that, I'll give you some really good examples. So um, example one is, um, apartments. They've been really, really in a, a very popular investment vehicle since the last recession. A lot of people, unfortunately, ended up foreclosed, as everybody knows, and people had to go live in apartments. So there was increased demand for apartments, lower home ownership rates in the U.S. And so they became very popular very quickly. Um, and so the crowd went to apartments and gravitated towards those as investment. So um, to me, as of about 2013, Invest the, the apartment just got too expensive for me as far as the cash flows you can get, the multiples of cash flow you have to pay. So as soon as something gets too expensive, I just move on to the next asset class. That's what I do. And that helps to keep me safe uh, to an extent or safer to avoid buying something when it's too expensive at the wrong part of the cycle. So um, if you ask me between 2009 and 2013, what I invested in, it's certain types of opportunities. As of about 2013, things started to get more expensive. So then I kind of switched. So a great example since 2013 is um, one thing a lot of people have to keep in mind when you're passive is that because you don't have much control, you have a very small percentage of the vote because you're usually one of many investors pulled together and your capital is typically a very small percentage of the deal. So your vote really isn't very meaningful on a percentage basis. So you have to really think ahead as an investor when you're getting locked into these deals for five or 10 years. Uh, and by the way, locked in is the wrong word. There's ways to sell your portions, but it's, it's not so easy to do. So the mindset is that you want to stay in these deals for a long time and get the cash flow. So, uh, so my point here is that when you're investing in something on a five or 10 year horizon, you have to think way ahead. So I've been investing, basically positioning myself for a recession since 2013 in anticipation it would come in about five years from then. And that means that I'm investing in specific asset classes that I think will do well in a downturn. So um, mobile home parks tend to do very well in a recession just because they're low, lower cost um, form of, of housing. Um, Self-storage, people tend to use that sometimes even more during a downturn when they have to kind of sometimes they'll end up having to like um, trade down as far as size of home, size of apartment, and they'll have to go store some stuff. Um, and then also some retail strip centers that have the right type of anchor, uh, sorry, the right type of tenant profile 
to get through a downturn. So really good examples are a dollar store will be very popular in a downturn. What won't be popular in a downturn? A furniture store, right? People are typically not buying as many houses. They're not buying as much furniture in a downturn. So you have to be very careful with sizing up the tenant mix. And, and to be honest, retail strip center is becoming more tricky now because of the internet threat and potentially the future of robots and other things taking place of jobs. And so there's a lot going on right now. So, so retail is not the perfect example, but it's still a good example. So I mean, they could do really well in the right location in a downturn. It can also do really badly if you've got the wrong tenant profile in the downturn. So, so um, if you ask me, let's say in the next 10 years, what I think the best asset classes are going to be that I'm focused on right now, it's probably mobile home parks, self-storage, uh, apartments, but I'm waiting until we have a price adjustment after we have our next downturn. And then I think apartments will be a good give it back going forward just because of general continued demand. And then the fourth one is senior living, which has different types of investments, sub-investments within it. But independent living, assisted living, um, other types of senior living, based on the demographics that are coming up, that kind of seems obvious. But you have to be careful because senior living sounds like it makes sense right now. But the reality is that certain age groups demand certain types of senior living. So you've actually got to be very careful in the types of senior housing you're investing in, depending on where we are with the whole um, aging of the population. Um, so those are the four key asset classes that I see as what I would call obvious for the next 10 years. There are other asset classes that still make sense, um, that can make sense. And, there's, and by the way, there's always deals that make sense at any time, even throughout any portion of the cycle. Um, but they have to be unique. Uh, but I just gave you my top four, let's say, for the next 10 years. It just seemed obvious to me. No, and those do really play into all of the trends that I'm looking at, too. I mean, the mobile home parks, especially the gap between uh, the rich and the poor. I mean, the middle class is devastated, let's be honest, if it still right. exists. I mean, a middle class family and a middle class person right now is somebody that is one paycheck away, if you look at the statistics, basically, from uh, being poor. <laughs> um and I mean, it's really, really uh, shocking to see a lot of these statistics just from the amount of money that people have saved. What is it? Uh, something like $400, a, a, a certain percentage of Americans can't really scrape that together right now for an emergency. So that definitely plays into that to be able to serve uh, a growing uh, part and segment of the population. Um, and then some of the other things that you mentioned as well, uh, senior housing and living. Obviously, there's uh, 76 million baby boomers uh, that are entering their golden years. That are going to they're going to need uh, value creators and producers to serve uh, that part um, uh, and segment of of the economy. And cell storage is interesting because yeah, I mean it there <laughs> it keeps growing and expanding really well. Apartments. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on there because you talk about economic cycles and you did say and speak a little bit about that we're kind of right up there at the top where there's not a ton of deals anymore. Um, where exactly do you, do you see us right now? Um, uh, uh, how far away from a next potential downturn do you think we are? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's something I don't think anyone can predict with perfect certainty. And if they do, it's just luck more than anything. Right. Cause there's a lot of factors going to the exact timing, but if you ask me, I, I'm honestly expecting a, a downturn sometime in the next 24 months. It would be very surprising to me if we went more than 24 more months with a downturn. And frankly, it would not be surprising to me if we ended up in a downturn in three months from now. I just think it's happening sometime in the next 24 months, say. 
You're listening to Jeremy Roll on the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. You're listening to Jeremy Roll on the Cashflow Ninja podcast, and now back to our interview. No, it is very, very interesting. And the other thing that you mentioned, too, is you spoke a little bit about the commercial real estate sectors. Retail, obviously, a huge impact is Amazon. Uh, had or has had in this in this segment, um, there are opportunities in warehousing, right, and fulfillment because a lot of these e-commerce companies are moving into specific strategic areas um, to be able to ship everything uh, within a certain amount of hours, uh, sometimes same day, to buyers. Uh, other segments that you're looking at too, uh, is medical plays into that a little bit. What else are you seeing as far as co- uh, in the commercial space as some of the other trends to watch besides the online buying behavior and then obviously the baby boomer trend that plays into that? Yeah, great question. I do think warehousing is interesting. I think that the challenge for someone like me, I do have some industrial um, investments right now, but where I, why I find it more challenging to invest in that asset class is because there's really a lack of diversification typically in a, in a property. So an industrial building often has either one tenant or just maybe a couple tenants. So to me, you're taking on more tenant risk there and more vacancy risk. So even though I think it might be a growth area, and, and by the way, the interesting thing about warehousing too is that there's been these hubs that have built up over time. Um, let's say um, Sparks Nevada is a great example where um, Jet.com has a huge warehouse. Uh, Thrive Market, which is actually a company I've invested in, has a warehouse. Um, and I think Amazon has a warehouse. And the reason why is because there are these transportation hubs where, you know, they can, it has to do with proximity to population on ground shipping within a certain radius and how quickly you can get to them and all this type of thing, right? So it's very strategic. So if you're going to invest in a warehouse and you've got to be very, very careful on location. Um, and also um, in industrial, one of the challenges in industrial is that because you're basically investing in what I would call like an empty box or shell, right? It's not typically a property that has a huge amount of improvements to it. Um, there's a lot of volatility in the per square foot rate when you have a downturn. So it's more exposed to a downturn potentially than a lot of other asset classes in terms of volatility of pricing. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there, but a lot of you have to be very careful with how you, you invest in it. Um, and going forward too, reading industrial is very challenging because if you look at Amazon Prime now, which delivers within one to two hours, the way that they've actually managed to get that footprint in many cities is they invest in smaller warehouse buildings in very specific locations that have a certain surrounding radius population reach within an hour drive, but are also right off of the foot of highways typically. So if you understand that and know that, you might get really lucky and be the person they make the bet on as far as the location and the building. But if you're not one of those, you know, if you if you end up with that building, often those buildings are not even common in those areas. They're just the best location for the use of Amazon. But it's not like they're going into a heavy industrial area where there's a lot of industrial buildings. You're going to have other users that are going to take them up. So it's very tricky because um, I've researched this. Um, as far as other trends, I would say that um, 
when I'm trying to sort out myself, honestly, and trying to help predict the future, is the further threat of the internet and which types of retailers, even service-oriented retailers, which historically has have been hit as much, will be impacted. And a great example of this is I think McDonald's is actually testing out um, delivery right now. So, you know, forget drive-throughs. You know, you just, you know, use your app and it gets delivered to your office or your home. And so the question is, will you see as many of those locations anymore that have drive-throughs or not? And what is the impact of that? Um, And then self-driving cars, you know, I think there could be a huge impact of that within the next 10 years. And, um, you know, it used to be that cities were designed to accommodate uh, services surrounding a population. So a great example is office space, which is one that I'm concerned about. The reason why it's so hard to read is because historically, a lot of suburban office has been built so that it's close to suburban areas where people live and then they can go work in those areas, right? The problem is that millennials, for example, much prefer urban areas. And what's interesting about that is that with self-driving cars, arguably, millennials can live in a very high-density area and then take a self-driving car to a secondary area to work where it's going to be easier to get there because it's self-driving. So it's actually very hard to predict where office is going to be used within the next 10, 20 years. And not only that, but the telecommuting factor and improving technology is going to make that even more common. So that's a great another example of stuff I'm looking out for. And I am trying to sort out robots as well. I am I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but I am worried about a decent percentage of the population being, uh, you know, losing their jobs as a result of automation and robots Um, in things as simple as like someone working behind the counter at McDonald's that are flipping burgers where a robot can do that at a cheaper price. So I'm trying to, it's not just about the job in that location because that location may survive and that retailer may be there, but it's about the impact of the surrounding employment rate within that area. And then how does that affect what type of housing that person is using? how much money they're spending in the area. Can they support the amount of retailers that were there before? Or is there all of a sudden less retail demand in the area because unemployment rates are up? It's very complicated. And I'm still trying to sort all this out uh, myself on, on depending on the asset class. It's very interesting because it affects everything. As you just said, it starts with that person losing their job. And a lot of people are going to be, uh, you know, are really going to be caught off guard with this. And that's why I continually encourage people that you have to continually update your skill set and find ways to provide value for other people that they seek because things are going to keep changing and keep evolving and rapidly. Um, and some things, you know, we can see the driverless cars and the robots, obviously, from because you know, we, we could see that coming, but there are other things out there that we don't even know of or nor see that will impact our lives in many different ways. I agree. And, you know, for those of you who are listening, who are saying to yourselves, well, Jeremy sounds a little extreme, robots, self-driving cars. I'm worried about it in 20 years or 15 years. That's okay. I get that. What I think a lot of people have to understand when you're a passive investor is that you're often getting locked into a 10-year opportunity. So, 10 years, I mean, if you can imagine, MC, the iPhone, I believe, was launched 10 years ago. Think about that. That was the first form factor of the current type of phone that we use with the supercomputer in the pocket, 10 years ago only, right? So so a lot can happen very quickly in 10 years. And what I would tell people is, okay, you may not buy that all the McDonald's are going to go away in 10 years, and I'm not saying they're going to. But as an investor, if you're looking to invest in a retail property, that has a Dunkin' Donuts drive-through or a McDonald's drive-through, and you're depending on that being there in 10 years from now, that's a question mark. 
And the question is, are you willing to take that risk or not? That's up to you. The more important thing is that if you keep yourself educated and up on the trends like we're talking about, then at least you actually are aware of that risk. Because I think a lot of people may go into opportunities not being aware of the risks that could come down in five or 10 years. So, so you may not agree, whoever's listening may not agree with that being a risk in five or 10 years, but at least you're aware of it. And just being aware of it, you can make a better decision. And for someone like me who's low, really low risk, I would say, you know what? I'm not even willing to take the risk. You know, it's just not worth it. I can look at other things. So if I'm going to be, if I'm aware of it, I can make those decisions. But if I'm not aware of it, you don't even realize you can make those decisions. And to your point too about uh, what, 10 years ago, the first supercomputers in your pocket, just think about the internet. What is that? A little over 20 years now? That yeah. <laughs> and, internet and, was... <laughs> yeah. I, I think the high speed internet, which is really interesting. DSL was only in the late nineties, early two thousands, depending on where you live, which is really not a long time ago. And that changed completely changed how, we can all work, for example. I mean, you and I are doing this podcast. We're both sitting in our homes doing this. That probably wasn't possible 15 years ago. Um, so that would have created a whole different subset of how do we do it? What's it going to cost for us to do this? So things change very, very rapidly. It's amazing. Now, are there some markets that you also look at um, in particular, or is it basically you're, you're looking at all 50 states, or are there some markets that, uh, that you look at favorable uh, with opportunities coming down the road? Yeah, great question. So as kind of what I call like a, a low-risk, stabilized, passive cash flow investor, you know, the one thing I should point out is I normally invest in opportunities that are 80% occupied or more. And really, my optimal opportunity is that I go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and nothing has changed because I like the predictability of that quarterly paycheck and the cash flow. So with that in mind, I'm really heavily cash flow focused. So I tend to avoid um, a couple of states where properties are more expensive. So California is a great example. There are some exceptions. I currently have a few investments in California. But on average, I don't typically invest in California just because um, the prices are higher. So the cash flow that you can yield is lower as a result. So um, those ratios don't work out as well as they do in other states. So I tend to avoid California as a general rule, but I'm open to most other places. Now, I do want to point out, though, that Florida is a great example. Florida has hurricane risk, right? And, um, you know, everyone's going to have their own opinion about what they're comfortable with, you know, which asset class. But I'll, I'll tell you, in Florida, for example, I'll invest in self-storage. Reason being, if there's a hurricane, not only is it built to a certain standard, typically withstand it, uh, but if you have damage, there's typically no windows. There typically is going to be minimal damage. You might have to replace some air conditioning units that are outside that might have some damage. But, you know, relative to, let's say, a apartment building that has windows everywhere, you know, you're going to have a low risk of having some issues. Um, and But then mobile home parks, for example, in Florida, you might think to yourself, okay, if I own a mobile home park, but I don't own the homes and just the land, in, in that situation, why am I worried about hurricanes? Well, the reason why you're worried about hurricanes in Florida for mobile home parks is because um, the entire every, every home can get wiped out from the wind, and then you've got no income coming in until all the homes are replaced. And then, by the way, you know FEMA can't handle the devastation of an entire area that big being hit by a hurricane. The homes are not going to come back in for a very long time. Whereas if you're if you're investing in a mobile home park where there could be tornadoes, a lot of people would probably be worried about those. But they're actually less of an issue because they cover a much smaller area when they do affect an area. And if it actually, if it happens to devastate your park specifically, typically it's much more manageable for FEMA. It's a much smaller um, footprint of devastation. So the government will come in very quickly, 
help the tenants on average. And this, by the way, is an average scenario, of course. We'll typically come in more quickly, help the tenants get new uh, homes in through FEMA relief. And you'll be in a position much more quickly to have uh, your income coming back in. And not only that, but you'll have all brand new homes in there, right? So, mm-hmm. so you really have to think about, uh, it's not just a question of investing in which states I will and will invest in. It's actually what makes sense within each state. Because um, I won't invest in, in anything in Florida, at least not at the moment, except for self-storage because of the weather risk, the hurricane risk. So, uh, but, on a, but generally, I will look at pretty much almost any state, unless it's like a California-type state where, pr- where prices are typically very high and cash flow is lower. One habit I've observed from wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new things and learning new skill sets. What are you currently studying and what skill sets are you currently learning? Yeah, no, great question. Um, I'm always studying. Um, <laughs> I probably do one to two hours a day of reading of the news alone just to stay on top of um, the trends in the economy and real estate and everything else. But So that's an ongoing. But, um, but what I'm currently really focused on right now is trying to understand senior living better understanding how the various subclasses of senior living work, um, which ones make sense today, which ones make sense in five or six years from now or in 10 years from now, and how to potentially um, invest in that space successfully without getting hit too hard uh, because there's been some overbuilding in certain areas. Um, The population being aging isn't necessarily at the right point in the cycle yet for some of the types of senior living. In other words, it's not on average old enough yet, but it's getting there. So I'm trying to really get my arms around that. And I'm, I'm kind of diving in very quickly to that just because I have no exposure. That's the last asset class I don't have exposure to that I really want to get exposure to at the moment. Now, Jeremy, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations, and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? Yeah, great question. I love when you ask that question. And, and by the way, I love your podcast. I should have said it to the beginning, but <laughs> thank you. I've listened to almost every single one, and they're always great. Um, so um, first thing I would say is, and, and this I'm sure people have heard before, but, uh, but I could tell you I've lived through this, and it makes a huge difference. You know, focus uh, you know, for your work, Focus on what you really like. It'll make it so much easier. Um, I spent over 10 years in the corporate world in various positions. And I'm not saying I didn't like what I was doing, but it wasn't the perfect fit for me. And when I finally got into this, which is really the perfect fit for me, boy, I tell you, like, I don't, it's funny because my kids who are young, they go to school and I always say to them, oh, tomorrow's Friday and then it's the weekend, right? And that's not an issue for me, right? I understand why it'd be an issue for them going to school and doing the work, but it's, it's not an issue for me. Like I used to be an issue for me when I was not doing what I like, but now that I'm doing what I like, huge difference. I don't really care if it's Monday or Friday, except for the fact that I get to spend time with my family. I'm saying from a work perspective, it doesn't bother me. So that's one thing that's a huge, huge thing. And um, as much as it can be hard to get a job at times and everything else, I just suggest somebody strongly sticks with what they love and build that experience in that exact sector and it's going to be a much better time at work every day so that's number one um number two is i'm a um a huge uh, proponent of um kind of operating out of abundance instead of scarcity um and so there are some people i talk to sometimes because i do a lot of networking and other um you know i have my own private investor group and there's other groups i talk to and sometimes the groups are kind of 
you know, to themselves. They don't want to share their contacts and others are just completely open. And what I've learned, especially on the investing side, is that it's a really a team sport. It may not appear like it, but it is a team sport. And the networking effect is huge. And, I, you know, I'm always in the mindset of trying to spread around the contacts. Um, I just feel like working out of abundance, it just comes back to you and it just opens up so many more doors. So no matter what you're doing, if you could try to work out of abundance instead of scarcity and try to partner with people instead of trying to keep your contacts to yourself, if, if there's creative ways you can do that, I find that that really ends up putting you in a better position long term. Um, that's a you know huge thing. And then the number three thing, which I definitely read about a lot and I fully agree with uh, and I've lived through it, is whatever you're doing in work and in life in general, if you could help people, you know, whether it's a product you're making that adds value to them, whether you could just help them in general. I spend a lot of hours a week, not not calls, but hours a week on the phone with people who are brand new investors and I just try to help them out. And, you know, I really believe in karma in that respect. And but also just in terms of a service or product you're offering, if you can find something that solves a problem for people and helps them, you're always going to go in the right direction with that. So um, that's a huge thing for me. And it's made a huge difference in my life. And I would definitely pass that along because it's a great feeling to be able to help people on top of everything else. And you're just kind of that that kind of also ties in with the abundance that we talked about. And it just it's just a great way of living, to be honest. No, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, the one point that you just made about the networking, it's just so, uh, so powerful when you come from abundance, because I think that that is the mistake sometimes uh, I see people make when they, when they uh, start networking and join a network, they try and see immediately what they can get from the network where wealthy and successful people, um, they truly, truly, uh, join networks to really see how, how much value they can possibly add to that specific network and make introductions to for uh, to other people and for people um, so that they can exchange value and then through doing that the value comes back to them so it 's a huge thing that I see in some of the networks that i 'm part of um, and people that uh, provide so much value to that network really becomes very very important to that network and as you mentioned about karma, eventually the value that uh, flows back to them just flows back in so many different ways and so many different currencies because everybody 's currency is different as well. Yeah, I can't tell you, MC, how much I agree with that, how much it's affected my life in a positive way. And I can understand someone who's new out there thinking to themselves, you know, yeah, this sounds like a great theory, but, you know, I have no idea if that really works. I promise you, you know, it doesn't work in a day, you know, maybe not even a year, but all the, if you're going to approach networking out of abundance, it, it just makes a huge difference in the long term. And I would say this too. Is that if, if you're in a networking event or you're on the call with somebody who's brand new and you're networking with them, if you haven't asked them the question, how can I help you? Literally, how can I help you? Um, then I think you're missing the mark. Um, and I will say that I get that question back from time to time and it's great to hear and it's great having that, you know, receiving it. But I think it's imperative. Like if you haven't asked that question before you finish that networking meeting or call, I think you've fallen short to an extent on, you know, maximizing the potential uh, for both helping somebody, but where it could come, you know, how it could come back to you down the line. 
Absolutely. And then by asking them that question, you know what they're look, looking for and what, they're, what their, some of their goals are and what they want to do with their business or investment and so forth. So you might be, not be able to help them right away, but knowing that already, you're going to come across something where you may be able to help them or introduce them to someone that's going to be able to help them. Yeah, I would say too that um, when you ask that question, often what ends up happening is people are very appreciative. They don't hear it necessarily that often and it makes them more proactive in trying to help you as well, which is interesting. And that's, I'm not saying you should do it for that purpose, but it's, it's a nice side effect that happens as a result of that. Absolutely. Now, Jeremy, how can my listeners learn more about you and stay informed of all of the projects that you're involved with and how can they reach out to you if they want to have a conversation with you? Sure. Yeah, the best way to reach me is definitely by email. Um, so my email address is jroll, which is J-R-O-L-L, at rollinvestments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. I am always happy to network with anybody. Um, if you're out there brand new and just curious how this works, I'm happy to take the time to help. If you're in the corporate world trying to figure out how to get out, which is what I did from cash flow, happy to help. If you have an investment that's looking for investors, you know, or like me, and it's cash, passive cash flow focused, and it's basically an asset based opportunity like real estate, very happy to, to hear about it. Um, happy to help any way that I can for whoever. So feel free to reach out to me. Fantastic. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners. Yeah, th- thanks, MC. And thanks for continuing to, to have these podcasts. You just do a great job and have some great guests. So thank you for the, putting the time in. This is MC Laubscher, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. As you may know, I'm also the president and chief wealth strategist of Valhalla Wealth Financial. We help individuals, families, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and professionals build their wealth outside of Wall Street and help investors maximize the use of every dollar in their personal economy and boost their investment gains. We do this by combining the capital and investments with the financial vehicle of the wealthy according to the infinite banking concept. If you're interested to learn more about privatized banking and the infinite banking concept, you can access an exclusive webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Thank you for joining my guest, Jeremy Roll, and myself on the Cashflow Ninja today. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. I'm always trying to learn and improve in every area of my life, so if there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please reach out to me at info at cashflowninja.com. If you're not a subscriber to the Cashflow Ninja Gushku newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com or text Cashflow Ninja to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. You can also support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. When you become a patron for 12 months, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott have been in your shoes and have used real estate investing to become financially free. They've designed a system to take any beginner to an experienced deal-making investor in the least amount of time. They offer opportunities from basic education, coaching, bridge loan investing to turnkey investments in the cash-flowing market of St. Louis, Missouri. 
For more information, please visit joinupsproperties.com or call Jimmy and Bob at 314-799-2247. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash private lending. Creating passive income for you and your family is easier than you think. All you need are three things, the right plan, the right product, and the right turnkey provider. As an investor, you want a safe, profitable, and convenient way to invest your capital without being at the mercy of stock market fluctuation. Investing in real estate in a turnkey way that provides monthly passive income with very low risk is exactly what Spartan Invest provides for their clients. Their mission is to make investing in real estate easy for the busy professional. Spartan Invest help investors create passive income and wealth through turnkey ownership in Birmingham, Alabama. You can download your free report, Five Big Reasons to Invest in the Magical City of Birmingham, Alabama, at CashflowNinja.com forward slash Spartan. The wealthiest families on the planet know how to capture their wealth and then leveraging their wealth through their own banking system. If you're interested in privatized banking and the infinite banking concept and learning the premier strategies of the wealthiest individuals and families on the planet, you can access your free webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. That's our show for today, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness. 